0: Well, thanks, choir and orchestra, and I know I say that every week after they sing, but I do appreciate what they do for us, don't you? What kind of service would it be without our choir and our orchestra here? And thank you very much. We do appreciate all the effort and work that you folks put into that. In your Bible today, the book of Luke, chapter 24, the last chapter, written by Dr. Luke, and... Then as soon as you find it, go to the book of Acts chapter 1 because the same man wrote both books. He wrote two books of the Bible and uh, Dr. Luke was probably the only Gentile, the only non-Jew who wrote in the sacred scriptures and a godly man and associated of the apostle Paul. Now, if you will stand with me As I read to you from God's Word today, Luke chapter 24, Luke chapter 24, and we're at the end of the book, and the Lord Jesus Christ is the one speaking, and in verse 46, and he said unto them, thus it is written, now he's getting ready to ascend in just a few moments, thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer. And to rise from the dead. And so just before he ascended, the last thing he did was share the gospel with his apostles. Fellas, I don't want you to forget what this is all about. I want you to remember that I died and that I rose from the dead the third day. And now here's what I want you to do. That repentance... And remission of sin should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry ye, wait in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued or clothed with power From on high. He's speaking about the coming of the Holy Spirit, which occurred on the day of Pentecost. Now, Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. And ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, if you will couple this with what I just read in Luke. In Luke 24 and 48, he said, you are witnesses of these things. And in verse 8 of chapter 1 of Acts, you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. You shall be witnesses unto me. So the theme of witnessing is the thought this morning. Now go to Acts chapter 2 and verse 32. Acts 2 and 32, and this Jesus in the middle of Peter's sermon at Pentecost, hath God raised up whereof, note it, even underline it in your Bible, we all are witnesses. We all are witnesses. And in chapter 4, if you'll turn over there, and verse number 29, and now, Lord as Peter is praying here, behold the threatenings of the council, the officials here, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness we may speak your word. And so in the midst of persecution, instead of folding up, And buckling under to the governmental authorities who had told them, you can't witness anymore, they pray for more boldness. Isn't that amazing? They don't say, oh, woe is us. We're being persecuted. No, Lord, help us to be more bold than we've ever been, even though we're being opposed. And now in chapter 4 and verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place was shaken. And that's what prayer, when God's people really begin to pray, and God begins to move. And they were assembled together. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And they spake the word of God with boldness. And if you will go down to verse number 33, with great power gave the apostles witness. There's our word again of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them. And in chapter 5 now, and the last one is in verse 32. And we are his witnesses of these things. And so is also the Holy Ghost whom God hath given to them that obey him. We are his witnesses of these things. And you may be seated. Thank you. And the message this morning after several weeks on the Acts chapter 2 church is the Acts chapter 2 church is a witnessing church. The Acts chapter 2 church is a witnessing church. Now, last week, it was the Acts chapter 2 church is a praying church. And in a week or two, it'll be the Acts chapter 2 church is a spirit-filled church. So we're going to take each of these qualities that we see exhibited so profoundly in these passages And we're going to look at them as they go all the way through and see how that is absolutely critical to having an Acts chapter 2 church. Now, what is witnessing? Well, they view witnessing and prayer, witnessing and prayer as the primary priority activities in their spiritual life and in their church's life. This was absolutely basic to what it meant to be a Christian in the New Testament sense. A Christian is a person who is a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ in the book of Acts, in the Acts 2 church. Now, what does it mean to be a witness? It simply means to tell someone else what you have seen or what you have heard or what you have experienced. It is always firsthand. Witnessing is never second-handed. It's not telling someone what somebody else told you. Witnessing is telling firsthand, this is what I saw, this is what I heard, or this is what I have personally experienced. So you can't give my testimony. I can't give Ezra's testimony. Witnessing is firsthand firsthand. This is what I saw, this is what I heard, this is what I've experienced. That's witnessing. The best illustration, I think, in the whole Bible is in John chapter 9. The Lord Jesus Christ is in the temple and he sees a blind man who the Bible makes the point he's been blind since his birth. He's never seen the light of day. And the Lord Jesus Christ begins to talk to him and subsequently touches him and now he can see. Well, that infuriates the Pharisees and the scribes and his critics because he did this on the Sabbath day. And they're more concerned about that than they are about this man being healed of his blindness. And so they come to the blind man, and here's what the critics of Christ say. They say, now he's a fraud. He's not for real. And we want you to tell people what what, what has occurred here. You straighten everybody out. And he's standing here for the first time in his life. He's probably looking around like this. He's probably not even interested in that. Everything's brand new. He's never seen it before in his life. And he said, well, here's the only thing I'm going to say. I know once I was blind and now I can see. (laughs) Boy, I really like that. Because what he's saying is, I know what I've seen. I know what I've experienced. I know what has happened to me firsthand, and you can say whatever you want about him, but one thing I know, I was blind, and now I can see. And another great illustration of witnessing in the Bible is a man named Philip who met the Lord Jesus one day. In fact, he went to the place that Jesus was staying. It doesn't tell us where it was, but he went there, the abode of Christ, the Bible simply says. And Philip then after meeting the lord jesus christ goes to his brother nathaniel both of whom later became disciples and philip says to his brother i have found the messiah that's a witness see that's what i have seen that's what i have heard that's what i've experienced we have found the messiah who is called the Christ. This man that we've heard about all our life, growing up over at the temple, Sunday school, and all that stuff, we have heard about it all of our life. I met him today. We have found the Messiah. See, firsthand experience, what I've seen, what I have heard, what I have experienced. That's witnessing. Witnessing to these people is far more than a suggestion. Witnessing to these people was far more than a recommendation. Witnessing to these people after Christ ascended was a command of the master. It was a command of the commander-in-chief, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when I speak about witnessing, I hope this is not happening. Please don't switch me off. Christians in America don't want to be confronted, and I guess that's the only word I can use, with their responsibility to witness. They don't want to be bothered. I mean, we've really got important stuff. We've got football games to go to. We've got hunting trips. We've got shopping trips that we need to take. There he is up there putting the guilt trip on me again, trying to make me witness. I don't want to do that. I don't feel comfortable doing that, says the average Baptist in his mind or her mind, even if they never verbalize it. The issue is this. The issue is not Bill Monroe. The issue is what did the master say for you and I to do? Well, if you'll excuse my grammar, we ain't doing it. Ninety percent of evangelical Christians in America never share the gospel of Jesus Christ with another person. Only about, in fact, probably only about two or three percent of the people share the faith. And is it any wonder then that the faith is shrinking in America? When, as I've read to you about five times there, it could not be clearer or more pointed. The master said, you are my witnesses. You're to tell people what you've seen, what you've heard, and what you've experienced. And boy, did they take that command seriously. There is an urgency. When you read the book of Acts, what a great name for the book. It's the book of action, it's not a book like Psalms of meditation and prayer. It's a book of action. We've got to get out here and do this. There is an urgency because the Lord Jesus had said to them, if you remember, something like this. Don't say there are yet four months before cometh the harvest, but right now the fields are white unto harvest. And right now we have to get the crop into the barn before it spoils in the field. I personally believe this is the pattern laid out in the book of Acts, and I've read it to you so you know that I've shared with you what is biblically true. And I'm speaking, obviously, to Christians, to members of the church who profess your faith in Christ. And I want you to see something. The Acts chapter 2 church is a witnessing church. That was the pattern that they did over and over and over. They witnessed. That's how they won the world of that day in the first 300 years to a majority view of Christianity from paganism. It's how that church exploded and went from 120 people gathered in the upper room and praying on the day of Pentecost until by the end of chapter 8, Authorities who've studied this demographically say that in a city of approximately 200,000 people at that time, 100,000 or 50% of them had converted from Judaism or paganism to faith in Jesus Christ. It exploded. And I want you to remember why they didn't have radio or television. They didn't even have cell phones. Can you imagine a life without a cell phone? But they didn't have a cell phone. They didn't have radio, TV, internet, printing presses. They didn't have any of the technological marvels that we have today that would help us get the gospel around the world. And yet the gospel spread and exploded like it never has before at any other time in history. I believe that's still the pattern for us today. I'm glad for the expanded opportunities that I've had as a preacher. I stand here and look in these television cameras. For almost 30 years, I've been preaching to the whole east coast of South Carolina from clear up almost Wilmington all the way down to just north of Charleston. And all the way over into, and, and, and tens of thousands of people we know are watching this service right now as I speak. Thank God I've had the opportunity to do that. And we have printing presses that we can print beautiful material. And we have all kinds of, we got CDs for sale out there that you can take them and pass them around. You can click on the right button on your computer and there's a podcast and there's an MP3 and there's all this stuff to get the gospel out. But here's the difference. None of that has with it the same impact As a person saying, this is what I heard, this is what I saw, this is what I have experienced, this is the truth, and this is what it's done for me. And that's the most powerful way to spread the gospel, and it's the pattern for us today. And by the way, because we have the technology, I don't think the Bible changed and said, well, you don't have to worry about the witnessing bit anymore which we might tend to think. There are three primary ways to witness for Christ. I hope you might write these down first. There's the direct method. The direct method in John chapter 3, Jesus went to see a man named Nicodemus. He's a religious man. Stop. Look up here. Don't miss this. When we don't witness because we know somebody goes to church or is religious, We're going to miss most of the people that we could win to Christ. You're a rabbi, you're a master in Israel, and you don't know that you need to be born again, said Jesus to Nicodemus. How in the world could that be? You are religious, you are moral, you go to the equivalent of church every Sunday. You don't know that you need to be born again. And the direct method, I don't know how long Jesus sat there that evening and talked with Nicodemus. 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. But at some point after getting into the conversation, Nicodemus had sought him out. And Jesus began to tell him directly the gospel. And the gospel, he told him then what to do. You must be born again. Notice that he gave him the gospel. He said, do you remember how Moses wrote about the snake on the pole back in the book of Numbers and said, as the snake was lifted up on the pole, so must the Son of Man be lifted up on the cross here in just another year or two. That's the gospel. Christ lifted up on the cross to die for our sins. And then he said to him, now what do you do about that? You must be born again. Well, Master, I don't know what you're talking about. You're a preacher. You're a rabbi. You've got your degree in theology, and you don't know what I'm talking about? Then you're lost. The direct approach. You must be born again. I can tell you in the PD and in the Bible Belt, you will never witness to many people who are not already religious. They're all Nicodemus. Most of them have, a lot of them have go to Baptist churches. Does that mean then that we don't need to witness to people because they're religious people or moral people or good people? No. I say it lovingly, but hell's gonna be full of good, squeaky, clean, moral people who did not know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Pardon me. So Jesus here talks to this man directly. Direct witnessing is always verbal. You either use, uh, you either speak, or you give a written piece. The gospel's in words, either way. By the way, in America today, I think so often we have sort of been talked out of being bold witnesses because there's this thing people talk about called a silent witness. A silent witness that's like a guinea pig. It ain't a guinea or a pig. It's like a grape nut. It's not a grape and it ain't a nut. It's, it's a strange term for something that really doesn't exist. A silent witness? So I watch a wreck and I go to court and the, the judge said, I want you to witness and tell people what you saw and what you heard, Bill. And I say, well, judge, I'm going to tell you what. <laughs> I'm just going to be a silent witness. Just sit here and watch my life, and in a few minutes, y'all figure it out. The judge would say, baloney. How many of y'all were led to Christ by a silent witness? That's what I thought. I've never had a hand raised. And I've done that numerous times across the country. Yes, we ought to have a good testimony. But the Lord didn't say go somewhere and live before people. He said go and give them the gospel. Tell them what you've seen. Tell them what you've heard. Tell them what's important and real in your life. Research proves this. If you go in the gospels here, there are 89. Now listen to me. 89 recorded witnessing encounters where people are witnessing in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospels. Of the 89 recorded witnessing encounters, 86.5% of them are between strangers. The person who witnessed did not know the person to whom he or she was witnessing. 89%, 86.5% of the, of the time. In the book of Acts, there are 46 encounters between people, uh, someone who was witnessing and someone who was listening And 82% of them are between strangers, which means I can use the direct approach with people and I don't have to go slow as I hear people talking about. People, oh, you got to go slow. Well, Jesus didn't go slow. He sits down and in the first time he is ever in a conversation, because the goal is not to make a friend though that's important. But the goal is to get the gospel to people somehow. Inoffensively, lovingly, kindly, but urgently. Don't wait four more months. Do it now. Then there's the direct method. There's the indirect method, John chapter 3. The direct method, John chapter 3. There's the indirect method, chapter 4. And here we have the conversation of Jesus with the woman at the well. And so Jesus is thirsty. It's noontime. The disciples go on to town to get something to eat. Jesus said, I think I'll just stay here and sit on this well for a few moments. And a woman approaches. Women didn't come to the well in the heat of the day. They came early in the morning and late in the evening. Why did she come by herself? Because she had been married five times, was living with a guy in the town. She was known as being immoral. And the other women probably didn't want anything to do with her because they were afraid she'd steal their husband, probably. And so she comes to the well with her pitcher. Jesus is sitting there. And what does he talk to her about? Water. What would you talk about at a well (laughs) in the heat of the day? Thirst. And Jesus begins to speak to her, and he has this conversation. And he does four things. And you're going to hear these again in the future from me. And I I promise you, if I live to do it, but he used a natural opportunity. Would you give me a drink? Natural. He didn't go out of his way to, uh, you know, he's sitting there. She approaches a natural opportunity that, that opened up to him. Two, he engaged her in conversation. In a normal event of life, she's coming to draw water. He is sitting there needing water. And so he begins to engage her in a conversation, obviously, about water. Thirdly, he asks her questions, and she listened to him. And the key to understanding a person is simply to listen. Witnesses are not only good speakers of the gospel, they are good listeners, because we want to learn what is making this person tick. How do I understand this person? And if we will just listen to people, we'll find out. In just a few minutes, they'll tell you what's driving them in their life. Are they fearful? There are a lot of people fearful today in America. Fearful? Are they confused? This woman was confused. Do we worship God over in Jerusalem or do we worship him up here on this mountain, she said? She's confused about what the true gospel is. Some people are hopeless they've just given up hope that there's any solution for their for them to have a relationship with the lord and fourthly some people are lonely lonely and she was no doubt she was a social outcast because of her bad reputation and so the lord jesus christ he follows that four four step process he used a natural opportunity He engaged the woman in conversation. He asked her questions and listened deeply, empathetically to her, trying to understand her deepest need. And then he shared with her the gospel. Now, the indirect method is probably as effective as anything you can do. I don't know which one's the most effective because the Bible deals with all three methods. But, here's the point. The whole conversation here only took about 10, 15 minutes probably. It's not a long, drawn-out thing because we're, we're very reticent about getting to the main thing. But if we don't get to the main thing, ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. We're going to miss these opportunities. We've got to close. We've got to get the gospel. It is the power of God to salvation. We put way too much value on getting people at the right time, under the right circumstances, in the right situation, because we feel impelled to get a decision right then. And I'm going to tell you something in a few moments. If you'll forget about decisions and start becoming a sower of the Word of God, you'll get more decisions. So the focus is not on talking people into something. The focus is on getting the gospel to people as quickly as we can. Now, the third method is in John 4, and I call it the relational method. And in this, believers witness to people with whom they have a prior relationship. The word prior is critical. I looked all through my Bible as I studied for this passage. I did research in my books and commentaries and on the internet, and I could not find, listen to me please, one single example, not one, of where somebody said, I'm going to make friends with this person, and I'm going to develop this relationship, and then someday I'm going to give them the gospel. I couldn't find one example of that. What I could find is example after example of people who already had prior relationships and would go and share the gospel with the people that they already had a relationship with. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, the woman at the well, after she received Christ, what did she do? She went as quickly as possible back to that village and the Bible says she began to tell it in the village to all of her neighbors in the village. And guess what? Person after person came to Christ. That whole village was converted because she went right to the main thing. And then I think of Matthew, one of Jesus' apostles, disciples. And Matthew was a tax collector. And he received Christ as his Lord and his Savior. He went home and the Bible says he made a great supper, a dinner party and he invited all of the other tax collectors over to his home, and he shared with them. In fact, he invited Christ, and he said, I want to tell you about this man. And then I read about a demon-possessed man who was living in a graveyard. He was an absolute maniac. He was out of his mind, demon-possessed in every way, and Christ led him to salvation. And freed him from his demons. And the man came, if you remember, and said to Jesus, I want to become one of your followers. Can I go with you? And what did Jesus say? Nope, you can't go with me. You go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you. Go back to those previous relationships and tell them what you've seen, heard, and experienced. And then there's Philip. And I've already told you about Philip. He went to his brother and he said, We have found the Messiah. Now, in those four illustrations, I've covered our friend day, our friend, our whole thing that we try to do here. The woman at the well went to her neighbors. Matthew went to his work associates. Uh, the demon possessed man went back to his friends. And Philip went to his family family, friends, relatives work associates, but in every case, they didn't build a relationship so that someday they could witness. That's the direct and indirect methods. They used prior relationships that were already established of family, friends, neighbors, associates, and they went to them and they said, let me tell you about what Jesus has done in my life. Now, I want you to turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 13, for a few moments. And I want to show you, if you will use the direct method, the indirect method, the relational method of your network of people that you know, and you will begin to tell them what the Lord has said, what what you have experienced, what you've seen, and what you've heard, I'm going to show you what's going to happen. Matthew 13 is a wonderful parable of the Lord. And uh, it has several purposes, which I won't go into today. Part of it's dispensational. Part of it deals with the church age and so on. But we're not going to get into the theology. I just want to show you what happens when you witness. Now, in the book of Matthew and chapter 13, in the parable, Jesus, in another place in the book of Mark, says, basically, that when we witness, it's like we're sowing seed. And so imagine a handful of corn or wheat or seed of some type. And and in all of the instances in the parable, it's the same seed. And then Jesus says, well, now the seed is the word of God. The seed is the gospel. The seed is the truth about Jesus Christ. The seed is not your personal testimony that leads up to it. Gives credibility to it. But the seed is the word of God, the pure gospel that Christ died for our sins, rose again, was buried in the tomb, resurrected then, and was seen of over 500 witnesses. That's the the good news, basically, in a nutshell. Now, in verse number 4 of chapter 13, we'll begin with me in verse 3. And Jesus spake many things unto them in parables, saying, A sower went forth to sow. Now the sower would be any Christian who is going to sow the word of God. And when the Christian witnessed and sowed, some of the seed fell by the wayside. Now that's simply the roadbed, the way, the roadside. And it says, The fowls came and devoured the seed. And so, here's a sincere witness who shares the gospel with somebody, but it doesn't do any good, apparently. I mean, it might ultimately, but we can't tell that it does. It doesn't immediately. It doesn't get a decision. The fowls come and pick up the seed, and, ta- and they eat it and take it away. Well, wh- who are the fowls? Okay, go down to verse 19, and you will see that the fowls are the wicked one, Satan. So when I share the gospel with somebody, it's very probable that tomorrow they won't even remember what I said. And what is the scriptural basis for me saying that? Well, because the the wicked one, Satan, comes and he catches away the seed. And what what they seem to be interested in at the moment, they're no longer interested in. The devil took it right out of their mind, right out of their heart, and they don't give it another thought. And then, if you will go down to verse 5, the sower sows the same seed, the gospel, on stony ground. But it says there's not enough earth, and so the sun comes up and it's scorched. This is one of the parables Christ gives us, his exact interpretation of the parable. And in verse number 22, he tells us, Or verse 21, he tells us what the interpretation is that the person listened. They may have even made a profession and bowed their head and prayed to receive Christ, but you can't even find them a week later because it was superficial. There's so little earth and so many stones here that it's a superficial acceptance. It may look like they accepted it, but according to verse 21, they're offended when persecution comes. The first time anybody laughs at them or ridicules them or says a negative thing about Christianity, I don't want any more of that. They quit. And if you'll go down to verse 7, there's the thorny ground where the thorns, the man sows the seed, he witnesses to the person, It falls into their heart, they hear the gospel, but the thorns come and choke out the seed. There's not enough nourishment there for both the thorns, which are already mature, and the seed, which is yet to spring forth. And in verse 22, the Lord interprets that. He says, and that's the cares of this world of life and the deceitfulness of riches Wow, what a verse for America. The deceitfulness of riches. Pastor, I don't have time to witness to anybody. I'm making a living, don't you know? Pastor, I've got a business to run. I've got things to do. I don't have time to do that. I might offend a customer. And the cares of life. The distractions, the problems, the burdens that we all face with family and life itself, and the deceitfulness of riches, someday I'll make my money and then I'll have time to serve the Lord," is choked. Three kinds of soil, same seed, zero results. There's another type of soil, though, in there, verse 8. It's called the good ground, fertile ground. Verse 23 tells us what it happens the seed falls and it brings forth life. A hundredfold, it doubles its production, 100%. Sixtyfold, great increase. Thirtyfold, a substantial increase. And all of it comes from that one. Hand, that sower who sows the seed. If you and I think every time we witness somebody's going to receive it, we've set ourselves up for defeat. Three out of four, for whatever reason, are going to reject it. But oh, that one, the seed falls and a life is changed. And that life is discipled and it reproduces. That person man or woman gets married and has three children and all of them turn out to be wonderful christians see that's a fourfold increase right there just in the family i know it's discouraging i know people blow you off i know that people "Ah, i'm not interested in that stuff And with the death of respect in our culture, they don't mind telling you that. They used to at least listen today. They don't even want to tell you. They'll just tell you in a heartbeat. Bug off, ma'am." But if we just keep on sowing seed, God will bring it a crop. Our responsibility is to sow the seed, not to produce a crop. No farmer can control how much of the harvest is going to be. He can get the conditions right as much as possible but he can't control the harvest. That's in the hands of the Lord, isn't it? When I witness, hear me, when I try to witness to somebody, I have two assumptions that keep me going. I almost have gotten to the point in my life when I, where I don't care too much what, how they react let me explain that it's my job to get the gospel to people the bible tells me the gospel is the power of god to salvation the bible the gospel has its own power i used to try to help the gospel out by getting the circumstances perfect around me i got to wait till they're ready well, I never could tell when they were ready. i gotta, I got to have the circumstances right. No, the gospel doesn't need any help. The gospel is like a line. Turn it loose. It can, it can defend itself. You don't need to set things up. Just sow the seed. The second thing I assume is that the Holy Spirit is going to come when I share the gospel, and he is going to be the greater witness than me. And so he has an infinite power that I don't understand. He is the one that moved upon the face of the waters in Genesis 1 and 2. If he can create a universe, don't you think he can handle my little witnessing situation with one person? We will begin to witness and sow the seed when we have a powerful conviction, the gospel needs no defense. The gospel can work in a person's heart. I can sow that seed now. It may be 10 years up the road, but God will water and bring that to a harvest. I don't know what's going to happen. Just sow the seed and let the Lord take care of the results. When we do that, he's going to use us. I'm really just teaching this morning because I want to help you succeed. So be urgent. Number one, don't say there's four months. Be intentional. I would like for people to walk out of here today and say, you know, I've, I've been afraid. I've been scared to death to witness. But you know what? The Lord said he'd be with me. And I can't botch up the gospel. It's so simple. And the last thing is, I'm starting something new today. You have your church program? How many of you noticed that there was a tract in the, in the... Did you notice that? Okay. We're going to call this tract day. Once a month in your church program, you're going to have a great salvation tract. This one's been used all over the world for decades, and thousands of people have come to Christ through the Romans Road to Salvation. Now watch me. I want you to give it out this week. It's going to be traumatic for some of y'all because you've never one time in your life ever done it. But let me help you with it. You can do it. You pray and ask God for an opportunity. And Now I don't want you to leave it on a bathroom counter where it's half wet and then somebody will pick it up. I don't want you to slide it up secretly under something. I want you to go to a real live person. And here's what I want you to do. Now, if you're really afraid, here's what you do. You sneak up behind them, and you say, would you take this? And then you just run for the hills. But at least you gave out one in your lifetime. Amen? Now, if you can do it a little bit more sophisticated, that'd be even better. You can just simply say, did you get one of these? that's a great question did you get one of these and uh, you get the gospel in somebody's hand this week you pray that they'll read it and who knows what God will do with this church listen to me there might be somebody here this morning and you need to be saved The Lord can save you right right here, right now. Christ died for your sins. He was buried, and he rose again. That's the gospel. He was seen of 500 people. So the gospel's different than other narratives of other religions because there are 500 eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Christ. You can say, I don't believe it, but you got to, you got to deal with the 500 people that witnessed it firsthand and said it was true. And if you will receive that right now, don't look for a feeling. Don't look... We're not talking about church membership. We're talking about knowing with assurance and confidence that Christ is your Savior. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.